We are going to be continuing as we are, we're coming close to the close of our summer series, or, or the first of our summer series, One Size Fits None. And this series, if you're new with us, has really been about the idea that sometimes when we're trying to connect with God, what works for someone might not work for us. And so to give people one-sided or one type of advice on how to connect with God just isn't always going to work. One size doesn't fit all. One size fits none. So we're exploring these different ways that we can kind of connect to God. If we're all created in His image and we're created differently, then the truth is there's going to be different ways that we should be able to do this. Today, we're going to be looking at the traditionalist. The traditionalist. This is loving God through ritual and through symbol. And you probably picked up pretty early that things were a little bit different today. And some of you were like, wait a second, every song we sang today was new, right? And I know that it was unique because as for some of you, if you have not grown up in any tradition of church whatsoever, everything felt new today. I, we always high five and fist bump and get it pumped over here uh, on, on that side platform and get excited about what Jesus is doing through music. And it was funny because my daughter fist bump and went, I don't think I really knew any of those songs before this week, you know? And it's like, sure, because those aren't things that we normally sing. And when I was her age, I didn't know a single one of them either. It just was not part of my pathways. But um, for some of you, there was something that was stirred. It brought you right back to being a kid. It brought you right back to, you probably in your head had some idea of a place where that song or some of those songs resonated deeply, whether it was a, a different type of non-gym environment for your spirituality um, or whatever it is, but it brought you right back there and you're thinking, it feels weird to read words on a screen, not have a book. I need to have, and so you're feeling this like it doesn't feel right. And I'll be honest with you, when it comes to the traditionalist pathway, this for me is something that for most of my life I wrote off because I didn't understand it at all as I grew up. And I think the best way to describe my journey as a traditionalist is actually from a 1980s serial commercial. Uh, I know that that sounds kind of crazy, but there's a commercial that stands out to me from that used to run during the Saturday morning cartoon slot. That was absolutely amazing. Uh, just, just this will help you understand where I'm at a little bit. Let's check it out. What's this stuff? Some cereal. It's supposed to be good for you. Did you try it? I'm not gonna try it. You try it. I'm not gonna try it. Let's get Mikey. Yeah. He won't need it. He hates everything. He likes it! Hey, Mikey! When you bring life home, don't tell the kids it's one of those nutritional cereals you've been trying to get them to eat. You're the only one who has to know. I love the cereal teaching deception right off the bat. Hey, Mikey! Now, this, it's funny because this uh, commercial was filmed in the 70s, um, but it was so influential, it actually ran on TV for over 12 years. It's a, it's a classic one, and, and I love this because the brothers are arguing over this cereal, and they're like, I'm not going to eat it, you eat it. No, I hear it's good for you. I don't want it, you eat it. No, well, I got an idea. Let's give it to Mikey Hole. He doesn't like anything. And, and what's he do? Mikey starts eating it, and what's funny about Mikey is... is that's actually not his name. It's one of the other two boys who are his brothers in the commercial. One of their brothers, one of the brothers' names is Mikey. And I think it's hysterical. But Mikey starts to eat it. And that's when we hear that iconic phrase. What is that phrase? 
yeah, come on, we can get that a little louder. He eats the cereal, and what's the phrase? He likes it! it. And you got to get your voice up there. You can't be like, he likes it, because they're definitely not there yet. He likes it! Hey, Mikey! And they're trying to get his attention. This commercial defines my journey as a traditionalist. I was someone who grew up with absolutely very little exposure or understanding to rituals, to symbols, and and when I was forced into a service, whether it was a funeral or a wedding or something, that it included some something more liturgical or um, you know hymns, anything like it. I was bored out of my mind, and so why would you want to step into this if, as a kid, you're bored out of your mind? No way. And so somewhere, though, in my mid-20s to about my early 30s, someone, somewhere in there, I started to understand and practice my faith in a bit of a different way as it started to expand as I ran with a more diverse group of Jesus followers. Before I knew what happened, I found the traditionalist pathway. It was almost like I started eating a traditionalist cereal. And I heard others around me going, he likes it! Hey, Jimmy! Like, do you get this? And it was amazing. And I found so much grounding and hope in this pathway. And I hope two things for today. If we could leave here, this is what I'm hoping for. If you have absolutely no connection to tradition, to ritual, to symbol, and this is outside of what you have understood, I really hope today that you see that there is massive value in it. The other thing that I hope for is if you have grown up with having this forced on you and it's like an allergy you have going, I I don't want to do this ever again. I really hope today and my prayer for you this week is that that the Holy Spirit would redeem these practices in your life and that you would find hope in them, not a burden because I think that's what Jesus brings to our faith. So with that in mind, are you ready to dive in? All right, I think you're going to like this, and I won't get high-pitched on you again, I promise. Um, The two words that summarize the traditionalist pathway, as I said before, are the words ritual and symbol. And, And you might wonder why tradition isn't one of the words that they use to describe the traditionalist, and it's simply because there is a difference between rituals and traditions. They're very, very different. Um, Traditions are usually associated with like customs and practices that are passed down from one generation to the next generation. Uh, For instance, I learned of a tradition in my wife's family that I had no idea was a tradition until this year. We uh, go to the shore on vacation with her whole family. They've been doing it since they were little and uh, little kids, and now it's our family who does this. So we are in the kitchen of down in Sea Isle, in this house, renting it all together, multiple families in the same house, and uh, my favorite place is to be in the kitchen. And so Eileen comes into the kitchen, opens the freezer, and went, oh, no one did it yet. And I said, what are you talking about? She's like, you have to empty the ice as soon as you get into the house. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you always empty the ice in the freezer. Why? Because that's what you do. We've always done that. And I was like, oh, I'm not picking this fight. (laughs) So I stepped back. And I sat there and I thought that was weird. When I told her, I asked her if I could use this illustration. She says, oh, that's not the weirdest traditions. That's fine. Use that one. (laughs) All of our families have them. 
I sat in the kitchen, kind of giggling to myself, thinking, that's odd. And then her mom and sister come up the stairs. They're walking in the kitchen. They walk to the freezer. And I was like, what are you doing? They're like, we need to make sure someone empties the ice. Why? Because it's the first thing that you do when you get in the house. I'm like, oh, I'm learning. I still don't understand why this is a tradition, but a custom that's been passed down from grandparents to parents, now to kids, and I'm wondering now if my kids are going to show up at my parents' house one day and just be like, we're emptying the trays. What are you doing? Like, that's what we do. No, I live here. You know, it's like, it was odd. I was so confused. This is different. This is a tradition, but a ritual, on the other hand, is a series of actions and routinely performed. They have a prescribed order to them. They're usually part of a larger symbolic system as well. They're not just these traditions that are passed down. They are very, very routine and part of something bigger. Um, think of how the, the Jewish people celebrate bar mitzvahs or bat mitzvahs. It's this coming of age ritual that welcomes them into the community. You know what I'm saying? Think of something, we do this, when you greet someone, what do we usually do? We hold out our hand to shake a hand. Why do we do this? It's a ritual of greeting that we all usually practice. And if someone doesn't shake your hand when you extend it, we're offended. You did not stick to the ritual. We have rituals, um, something as simple as uh, around birthdays. Around birthdays, we have a ritual where most people expect a cake to be there. And they expect candles to be on that cake in a certain number. Usually, it stops at a certain point because we don't want to set the house on fire. Um, but we, we have candles on a cake, and then we light those candles, don't we? And then we sing this awful, awful dirge of a death song, Happy Birthday. You're gonna die, happy birthday. It's like, oh, no. we gotta, but, but we all do it, right? Everybody knows the song. And I think it's hysterical when it's like, what key are we singing? Uh, I, d I don't know. Like, this is the worst song if you listen to people sing it. But we do, don't we? And then the ritual concludes by us telling them to do what? Make a wish and blow out the candles. And when they do, what do we all do? We clap and cheer and celebrate. We have a ritual around birthdays that we all participate in, we understand. And it's like, listen, when it comes to our faith, sorry, when it comes to our faith, we have rituals that hold us and they are, they, they, it's easy to look at them and think, these are a waste of time. I hate that we do some of these things. And what you miss and I miss is that some of the rituals that are in place in religion, and I use that word in a wonderful way, not in a derogatory way, that are in place for us, they hold us to Christ, not remove us from him. And in that process, you have to understand that any new ritual that we start, it, it takes a while to take. It takes a while to get used to it, and we just don't like it to begin with. So we're going to have to lean into that a little bit. I need you also to understand that rituals and routine and this tradition, this is instituted, created, and ordained by God. That's who has started this. He actually has lots and lots of commands and different rituals that he lays out throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to all who follow him. If you look at the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, uh, God chooses this man named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and they make this deal um, that, that there's going to be a blessing, and so to worship him, uh, he's like, what do I do? And God says, build an altar 
to worship. And so uh, Abraham builds, or Abram at that time, builds this altar. And then we see him take a little bit of a journey because God says, you're going to go to a place that I've, uh, uh, you don't know it yet, but I'm taking you to a new land. You just got to follow me. Right after this moment where he builds an altar, we find that he begins to travel. And you know what the first thing he does is? He builds an altar when he lands in the new place. When he gets to the new spot, he builds an altar. It's to mark a moment, God has met me here. And I will put a ritual to this. When I meet with God, there needs to be an altar in this place to know this is holy. This is where we are. And it became a religious practice for him. If you look in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 13, again, we find he builds it again. If you jump into Genesis chapter 22, he builds one more final altar in that place. This practice that he has, does it, does it lose its luster? Like, dude, how many altars are you going to build? Isn't one just fine? No. You see, it grounded him. It allowed him to say, this is different than other things. No matter where I go, an altar will help me understand who God is. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, God commands quite a few rituals to this newly freed nation of Israel, right? They come out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, and God says, I want to make sure that there's some pattern to your faith here so that you understand how we connect. And so Moses begins to record some very specific practices that they need to stick to. And it's not to burden them, it's not to make their faith harder, but it's meant to help them to remember everything that he's done for them and then take it and pass these rituals on to the next generation, not as a tradition, but part of a larger system to remember I am your God and obey what I have commanded. And the nation itself, once they enter into this new promised land, it expands over the next 400 years. Over 400 years they grow, and their command is obey the rituals, obey these traditions that we have put into place, and they, they just begin to waver. They don't follow these commands. They don't follow the rituals. They start to forget who God is. And if you have been soaping with us, which soaping is just simply the way that we read Scripture together as a church, you'll know that since they were no longer grounded in these rituals, God said, enough's enough. And he sent the Babylonians to take over Israel and bring them into exile, take them away from their land and bring them somewhere else. But something cool happens when these exiles, after uh, you know, 70 years, they, they come back to their nation, to their land. They haven't been there before. These are new generations of people, and it's like, so what are we going to do? And, and they build the temple first, and then they start to build the wall, and that's the story that we see this really cool moment while the wall is built that Bincy read for us. In Nehemiah chapter 8, it's this amazing moment. Check out what happens when the nation gathers together again after this exile. It says that all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, he's also a priest, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel to obey. 
And then skip down to verse 3, and all the people listened closely to the book of the law. Did you pick up what just happened? They were in exile. They did not have access to their law, and they didn't have these traditions. They didn't know what was going on. They build it all, and the request to Ezra is like, listen, man, can you tell us what got us into this in the first place? What did we forget? And then everybody gets together in the middle of the square. It says that the young and the old, and Ezra says, all right, listen, page 1. Let's go. And he starts to read the book of the law. He starts to to help them understand, here's the laws that God gave us. Here's the rituals that he put in place for us centuries ago. And do they go, oh, that's just for those older generations. Those traditions, that's not for us. We're definitely more progressive now. You know what the point was? It was to draw them back into the history of their faith to say that God has constantly been with them. God has never left them. That God has been faithful to those followers then and he's faithful to the followers now. And as they begin to read the book and the rest of this passage, they come across something called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths and Tents. It's this moment that they're supposed to celebrate. They read it and they're like, that's this month? We, we We gotta do that now. And you know what? They do. They do. They take the law, they put it into application right away, and Nehemiah writes that they celebrated with a crazy amount of joy like they had not celebrated in the last 800 years. Why would they celebrate? You see, the cool thing about that festival, it was a tradition. A week-long celebration that God had commanded with all sorts of things attached to it, what to sacrifice when, how to do that, what they're supposed to and not supposed to do. But one of the key things is they were supposed to sleep outside in booths or tents. They were not supposed to sleep inside. And it was to help them remember what it was like for the Israelites when they left Egypt, that they wandered the desert for 40 years and it connected them and now Stop for a second and just think about how cool this is. Did this tradition weigh them down and become a burden for them? No, 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 no. It gave their newly rediscovered faith that they're coming in this deeper sense because now they've come out of exile. They've come back home and they're identifying with, do you remember how hard that traveling was? Yeah, but God was with us. Could you imagine 40 years of God doing that? He was with them. It gave their faith roots. It made it deeper and richer. As a Jewish man, Jesus himself celebrated this festival. He did this. I mean, come on, it's, it's a couple hundred years after they did it with Nehemiah. He figured it would have just like, oh, it's enough celebrating, right? No, it was always good to remember their faith. It was a passing on. And Jesus practiced all the, a bunch of other rituals as well. We see that in the passage from Luke that Vincey had read for us. In Luke chapter 4, I love it. There's some words in here that Dr. Luke writes that are are amazing. In verse 15, it says that he taught, what's that word here? Regularly. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, what's the words? As usual, right, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. You see, Jesus had a structure and a rhythm. He had ritual as part of his faith. He was regularly going to the synagogue. That means it was routine enough 
as he always did, right? It's just as usual. These aren't throwaway statements by Dr. Luke. They're very intentional statements that make us understand and help us understand Jesus had a pattern to his faith. He would have learned these patterns when he was a child as he followed his mother and his father as they went to celebrate different festivals, as they went to synagogue every single Sabbath. And these are the traditions that grounded him into his adult life. So as he starts going around from city to city, where does he find himself? It's Sabbath. I don't know. What do you want to do today? I don't know. We're going to go worship my father. We're going to go to synagogue or go to church. That's what we do. Listen, I, I, I recognize today that for many of you, you have grown up with tradition and ritual being shoved down your throat. You've grown up and it's been a weapon used against you. It's used to shame you. And it's so easy for you, and it, it makes natural sense to me for you to want to push hard against this and say, listen, you don't get it. All of these rituals and things, they, they just become lifeless. They are stale. And that's how it was when I was a kid. And I, I don't, I, it's just a waste of time. I'm telling you, I've been there. It, it, it's probably largely associated because when you're a kid, how much of this is really going to mean something? Most kids don't like ritual. We like fun. We like play. Those, that's what we want to do. So a lot of what you've practiced when you were a kid or was taught to you, you ditched as soon as you could. If you've grown up in a Catholic tradition and you hit confirmation, you knew that was your peace out moment. I'm done. I'm completed. I'm out. My rituals are complete. You see, what we fail to realize is that some of these rites, as they're called, these rituals and these symbols, they've been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years, and this is what has been part of holding the church together for centuries. If, if it's held the church together for centuries, it can't all be bad, can it? Then why do we shame it so much? I want to look at some of the things that a traditionalist would value that we would see both in the story of Nehemiah and Ezra reading to these people that we see Jesus practicing because there's so much value in this pathway for some and what helps them connect with God you've probably picked up on the word I keep using is rituals 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 are very very important to a traditionalist and this is one of the reasons okay it's because hidden in rituals is the idea that there is great power in reinforced behavior there is great power in reinforced behavior um, protestants uh, roman catholics eastern orthodox christians they will all disagree on what rituals are most important i get that we will argue over what's most important but no one will argue about the fact that all Christians can benefit from different rituals in their life. We all agree this is really, really important. And there's all types of rituals that we could build into our faith, like um, different celebrations and observances. Different celebrations and observances. In some traditions, um, there are major moments of celebration around the first time someone can take communion. It's a beautiful, beautiful celebration. At Crossbridge, we have a large celebration every time someone gets baptized. We want to party, don't we? It is worth partying, amen? Oh, it's so cool. It's one of my favorite things that we do. Ritually celebrating major moments in our life, in the life of the church, and in each other's life, um, 
it's really important. And when you see someone take a major step in their spiritual journey towards Jesus, to take time to celebrate these things and mark them as a major moment, this is really good because it reminds us that God is constantly at work in, the, in our lives personally, in the lives of each other, and in the lives of our church. As followers of Jesus, we, we have to learn that there are times and there are rituals that help us pay closer attention to Jesus. We do this sometimes without even knowing it. There are two holidays in specific that even as evangelicals, we go, these are important ones. These are big ones. Any idea what the big ones are? Christmas and Easter. I'm wearing one of my outfits for those holidays. Do you know which one it is? Easter. Someone's like, you're wearing your Easter suit and shirt. What are you doing? Guess what? You know my ritual. You know that when I put this on, this color, this vest, something is different. It's not Easter, Jimmy. Why are you doing this? I broke a ritual. You don't like that. Why? Because rituals ground us. They're healthy. Most of us recognize Christmas Easter. We, we know that there's a heightened sense of awareness. But can I tell you what I hate about growing up not knowing any of this is that those were two holidays. They were not two days that were part of the Christian calendar. I did not discover until I was much later into my uh, late 20s, early 30s that there was something called the Christian calendar. Some of you are probably looking at me right now going like, how did you not know that? There is different marks of the year. How cool is this? Check out the Christian year. There are different seasons and times in the Christian year. And, and, and so it kicks off with Advent, right? It kicks off with Advent. Um, I really had no idea why people were lighting candles in church that are different colors. It made no sense to me. I now understand that there is a couple-week process leading up, and it's supposed to build up this anticipation to get to Christmas. And then we have Christmas. Christmas is a huge holiday, and we're like, this is great. Look at this. And, and that's what we're looking at here in the purple. And then we've got, uh, there's different colors that are associated with these that are ritual and have uh, symbolic meaning, but you don't have to worry about that stuff right now. Um, then there's this green area right after Christmas. Can I tell you what? It's like one of my favorite seasons. It's called Ordinary Time. Ordinary Time. I didn't know that part of a Christian calendar accounted for Ordinary Time, that there is space in our lives where it's like, we're always expecting God to do the extraordinary all the time. And he's like, yo, it's Ordinary Days. Take some Ordinary Time. I'm at work in your life. It's not always extraordinary. Sometimes it's just Ordinary and I'm working in that. And, and so we have that. And then we move and we kick off with, uh, there's the, this amazing Ash Wednesday when most people are like, oh, that's when they just start marking you up with stuff. And like, well, why? What? What's the point? This begins the season of Lent where there's 40 days that we intentionally lean in to remembering that there is a suffering in our Savior, that he suffered as he moved towards the cross. And that leads us right into Passion Week. And Passion Week now is where we look at all the days that Jesus celebrated as he was into Jerusalem, and it culminates with what major holiday? Easter! We celebrate Easter, and we go nuts! But for most evangelicals, what we forget is that the day after Easter... In the, or in the church history and church calendar, the day after Easter continues, and it's called Easter Tide. Imagine if you went to the beach, and when a wave hit, you were just done when the wave hit. And you're like, oh, that was fun, that's it. What's the best part about body surfing? 
It's when it takes you all the way in, isn't it? It's this huge moment of crash and it just takes you home. Easter tide is 50 days. 50 days where you ride the wave of a resurrected Savior right into Pentecost, which we celebrated when Pastor Will was taking us through that series, Life in Color, where we celebrated that there is a moment at Pentecost where we recognize the Holy Spirit filled the church and we're like, oh, it's just a Sunday. Are you kidding me? I lived so much of my life never knowing that there was a calendar to help people who have trouble organizing things on their own that will help me pay attention. There is seasons where you can pay attention deeper to Jesus. And then when we celebrate Pentecost, this is amazing. And we move into ordinary time. 35 weeks out of the year. 35 weeks, like two-thirds of the year in the Christian calendar is just ordinary time. I love that we get an ordinary, ordinary time together. But I feel guilt and conviction that we have not paid attention in the other seasons where the church tradition would have pointed us. It's not about two days of Christmas and Easter. That's not, you don't go to church on those two of the big Sundays. These are the big seasons. Pay attention in those seasons. In these times of the, the Christian year, I'll often find myself using different devotionals that will help me extend these seasons. Um, during Lent, one of the things that I, I like to do is I would read um, different things that help me lock in. Like this is The Word in the Wilderness by Malcolm Geit, and this is a, a poem of a day, a poem for the day. And it's like, oh, Jimmy reads poetry. And it's like, does this really inspire me every single time I read it? No, I'm as confused as I'll get out. But what I know is every morning I'm waking up expecting that God wants to say something in this season. And as I suffer through poems because I just don't understand it yet and I'm trying to learn it, does that all of a sudden mean, oh, Jimmy, you're, you're, you're identifying with the suffering of Jesus? No, not at all. I'm just trying to be aware of Jesus. And shame on me for if I'm like, it's just too hard. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to challenge myself a little bit. I need to do this. I love it. I use this ritual and habit in the Christian calendar, and while a time is ordinary time, I actually have rethought, and I'm like, you know, every January I feel like it's a new season, and I want to pay closer attention to Jesus in January, and I often will start my year with a book called Three Mile an Hour God by one of my favorite Japanese theologians, Kosuke Kuyama, and this man is amazing and he challenges the way that I think because he's like, you know what, you know what the speed of God is? It's about three, three miles an hour. That's the speed of walking. And I intentionally read this because all I want to do is hit the year running and by the third week of the year, I'm exhausted going, what just happened to me? I wasn't meant to sprint. I was meant to walk with God. I know you're probably thinking, Jimmy, you should be disciplined enough to know that. You'd think so but I need help. I need reminders. Intentionally slowing down. Another ritual that'll help the traditionalist is um, routine scripture. Finding themselves in routine scripture. Meditating on scripture is something I believe that all followers of Jesus need to do. This is just something we connect with God through his scriptures. And if we're not reading scriptures, I don't understand how we would be able to live, love, and, and look like Jesus. I just don't get it. 
But when you are a traditionalist, finding this routine pattern of how you read scripture is very, very important. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons we have our soap guides, is to try to help build routine for people who really like and need to connect to God that way. But keeping the routine is the key to a traditionalist. Even if you switch up what you do in that routine, having that pattern is important. Um, when, when people are struggling, anybody else ever struggle when you're reading the Bible going, I'm getting nothing out of this besides me? Okay, cool. Then, then I'm going to speak to you for just a half a second here because if you've ever been in that place like I've been in that place and you're like, I want to keep the routine, but it feels like I'm chewing on sawdust right now. There are different things that you can do to spice that up a little bit. I will um, stand up and I'll read the passage out loud. Not like I'm preaching it, but I'll just read it out loud while I'm standing. Why? It just changes the way that I hear it. It's kind of cool. I, I love to do that. Um, sometimes I will uh, have the Bible app read it to me, and I listen to it instead of read it, and it's just different. I, I want to keep the routine, but I'm going to change up how I connect to God in that routine, but I need that time in Scripture. One of the things my dad suggested to me as I was growing up when I didn't always want to read Scripture and it didn't connect is he always said, well, I use the Psalms every day. And I'm like, what do you mean you use the Psalms every day? He's like, I read, and he, he started at the age of 33. He started reading the Psalm of his age every single day. And so since 33 up to his 60-something, um, he has read Psalm 33, 34, 35. And I was like, I was texting him about it this week. And I, I remember this as part of your tradition. And here you're probably thinking, oh, shoot me now, that would be as boring as, as ever. I could never do that. You know, I used to think that. And this week, instead, I found myself trying to read Psalm 43 every day. I had no idea how much I needed this. And then when I asked my dad at 60-something, how's this going? We were on the golf course a couple weeks ago, and he always, man, man, Jimmy, this just jumped out at me. I know that I've read it so many times, but... I needed that this week. And he said to me, this week, it's funny how often these psalms that are the prayers of someone else become my prayers and guide me. They just become part of me. You see, it's routine. It's just part of what we're doing. Does it mean it's not, it doesn't count? No. What is, what is this counting thing? We need this, but we need routine prayer as well. Is a very good part of the traditionalist pathway. I think, again, I'm probably going to offend some people here, but if you've grown up in an evangelical tradition, I think we treat prayer far too flippantly. I think we just kind of toss prayers like, you could talk to God like he's your BFF or, you know, Jesus is my homeboy, it's no big deal. And then when someone comes to faith in Jesus and, and you're trying to help walk them through and they're like, how can I learn to pray like you? You're like, just talk to God like he's anybody. It's like, really? The creator of all the cosmos, just like, what's up, bud? You see, it, it's good to have some familiarity with God, to connect with Jesus, and, and he says, you know, talk to me, this, but we lose a lot of reverence for who God is, and we, we, need, we need help learning how to pray. Even if Jesus' disciples who spent day after day with him after three years are like, all right, listen, you do this. Can you teach us how to do this? And he's like, oh, let me give you a guide. And he gives them the Lord's Prayer as a guide. And he's like, oh, you could do this. We could recite many of us that thing like this. And it's like, oh, let me, let me get it done as quick as possible. It means nothing. Does that mean the prayer means nothing? No. What that means is that the heart of the person praying, it doesn't really care about it. But the prayer is a perfect guide. It's a great routine. It's wonderful to help us. 
I have found different prayer books that help me. Sometimes I don't have the words to pray and I'm just frustrated and I need help. I have a Jesuit prayer book that I use often called Hearts on Fire. This is really helpful for some of my morning prayers, evening prayers, midday prayers. I lean towards this book here called the Book of Common Prayer. And it's, it's just an amazing, for me, it's a liturgy for ordinary radicals. I need a grounding sometimes and I just don't have the prayers. These help me have the prayers. And, and you're probably thinking again, why does that matter? Like, it's not your words, Jimmy. I get distracted really easy. When I'm praying some of these prayers, it really helps me think about what I'm praying, not just talk to God like he's my buddy, but intentionally think about what I'm saying. And to be honest, I'm not a good person with routine. So I have alarms set on my phone in different seasons. Right now I have an alarm set at 12.23 and 10.23. When they go off, my prompt is to pray through Psalm 23. I'm not disciplined enough to remember that unless an alarm goes off and then I know. And even on vacation, it cracked me up. We're playing games and someone's like, you know, my alarm goes off 10.23. And I'm like, thanks. You know, and I shut my alarm and just ponder for a second and think there, does it mean? Like, oh, it doesn't count. I paused playing, you know, war. It's not about counting. It's about, am I paying attention to what God is doing? At noon, I used to have an alarm that went off. I'd pray the Lord's Prayer every single day. I remember praying it with my kids in the middle of Target. And it was like, it went off and then we're like, all right. There we go. They're praying the prayer with me in the middle of Target. I'm like, this is awkward. We're paying attention to God in Target because that's good. I want to strangle my kids in Target when they're that young. It was good for me. I think God doesn't cost. You want to spend an hour with God in prayer? Praise him. Just enjoy that time. What would it look like if you had... 12 different times where you spent five minutes truly paying attention throughout the day, that every single moment of the day you had to pay attention to what God was doing. I don't know about you, but an hour in the morning, if I had that, is wonderful. But it's going to be, that, that, that fullness is gone pretty quick. And by lunchtime, it's hard, so I need help. This is what routine prayer is, setting alarms, fixed times of prayer. Jesus did this as well. We've got rituals. The other side of the traditionalist that may be helpful is the symbolic part. And I just want to say this. Please hear me. Symbols are not idols, okay? They are not idols. They are reminders. Symbols really help overcome one of the biggest struggles that most people have, that almost most humans have. You ready for this? You and I have crappy memories, don't we? We just can't think of things sometimes. We are just out there off, and you're like, I, I, I just forgot. I, I wanted to remember. I just forgot. We use different symbols all the time in our culture to remind us of things. When you get married, you give someone a symbol of your love. What is that symbol? It's a wedding ring, right? It's a symbol of your love, and it's a symbol of the vows that you've made to keep with each other. The first five years of my marriage, I lost my symbol of love at least five to six times because I like to spin it and I would play with it. And, and it was really like, ah. And we decided, Eileen and I, that it was not smart to even spend $10 on a ring because we didn't know how long it would last. So we were like, you know what? It's okay. She knows I love her. I know she loves me. I don't need a ring right now. Until I remember we had a discussion that she said to me, the women outside of Kayla's uh, classroom, when you go to pick up our kindergartner, they treat you very differently than they treat me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're just friendly. She's like, that's not friendly. That's flirting. It's like, 
oh, I'm pretty obtuse to that stuff. Thanks for picking that up. I was like, no, no, no. But now the glass had been shattered, and I remember going to pick up Kayla, and I began to see the women interacting differently, but they looked at my hand. There was a look to my hand to see, was there a symbol that you belong to someone else, that you were committed to them? Because there was no symbol, I guess, free game? That's when we decided a tattoo would be good. I cannot lose this. Yet. Um, Eileen and I were cool with each other. There was no issue in our marriage. Did we need that? No. But this symbol wasn't to remind me I love Eileen. This is a symbol to remind others I am committed. And it's to remind other people. Symbols are great reminders. And God gave the Jewish people an absurd amount of symbols to point them back to remind them. Listen, there's things on your clothes that I want you to have to remind you of the commandments. There are things in your houses that I want you to place to remember to pray. There are things in your places of worship I want you to have to remember that it's holy. Symbols have absolutely nothing to do with saving us, but they have everything to do with reminding us of the gift of salvation that Jesus Christ has given us, that we get every single day. And just because we're saved does not mean that we don't need reminders on how to live holy lives. I'm going to say that again just so that you get this, because just because that we are saved doesn't mean we don't need help living holy lives. We need help. If it's going to be a cross around your neck on a necklace or something hanging from your rearview mirror, if it's going to be putting your Bible on top of your shoes so that you remember to read it or your phone underneath your Bible so it's not the first thing you pick up in the morning, it doesn't matter what is it that you can use to point you back to a life of holiness. You see, the early church did this everywhere. They did. They adapted symbols or adopted symbols into so many different ways. Symbols like the Trinity. How many of you have seen this symbol before? It's like three half circles that are all combined together and they overlap and it's meant to represent the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all being one and yet distinctly different. And then we have the thing on the bottom left there. That's a what? It's a cross. A cross is a symbol of what? It's Jesus. We remember an empty cross. And then we have on the right there a symbol of a dove. It's just a random bird. How would you know it was a dove? Ah, because we know that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in the symbol of a dove. And so a dove represents the Holy Spirit. And then what's above it? It's a crown, which is a symbol of God the Father, our King. You see, they're symbols. They're symbols. But they're meant to point us back. In the early church, they had a great symbol. Does anybody know what this is called? An ichthys, an ichthys. It was a, it's like a fish. This was the way that most followers of Jesus identified who was a follower of Jesus and who, and who wasn't. They, they would see this fish and understand, oh, there's people who follow Jesus there because it could cost them their life if other people knew. So they had to have a symbol that they used with each other. That was kind of like a secret code, like a secret handshake. And so they would use this often. And for the first 300 years, this is what defined a follower of the church because Christ called us to be fishers of men. One of the things I never understood as a symbol until I was in Israel was this one. Uh, this is a pelican. How many of you knew pelican was a, a really influential symbol in the early church? Yeah, me neither. Me neither. A pelican. And I was like, why a pelican? It was actually a symbol of Jesus because 
early naturalists would look at this bird and they would see it plucking at its feathers on its chest and it would pull them to the point where it began to bleed and it became associated with the bleeding heart of Christ. And then they watched it care for its young and it didn't just feed its young, but it would regurgitate its food for the young and the, the young would begin to feed off of what, again, the people watching at the time would assume was the flesh of the bird feeding its flock so that they would survive. And so everywhere they could, they would put this pelican to remind each other of Jesus who has given his broken body and his flesh for us. Isn't that amazing? It's a bird. But it was a symbol that meant something. This can become a problem for any of us the moment we start looking at these symbols and saying, I need to worship the symbol. If I don't do this one or two things, then it becomes superstition. And, and let me tell you, superstition is to religion what lust is to love. It's just a cheap substitute. Superstition does us no good, but symbols remind. As you move through traditionalist, just be aware of a couple things, and we'll close with these. Be careful not to move to a place where you are serving God and not knowing God. Be careful that you don't serve God without knowing him, um, without reading it in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, we read about a boy named Samuel who was serving in the temple. He was serving in the tent of God, and, and God speaks to him a couple times. And he has no idea it's God because he never knew God. God never spoke to him, and yet he had served for years there. Like, really? Yeah, it's so easy for us to let our rituals, to let our traditions, to let our songs become what matters most, and we never know God. We have to stop and be in a place that when something loses its original meaning, have we lost our love for God? Because it's just still a symbol. It's just a ritual. The second thing you need to be careful of is neglecting social obligations. Rituals and routine are very important, but if it comes at the cost of loving others every single time, there's a problem with that. You see, James is very clear when he says to the early church, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it is useless. Our routines to keep us grounded in Jesus are not for us. They are for the benefit of those who are around us as we love and look more like him. Don't get caught up in, I didn't do this. I, I can't help them move. I can't help them in this way because I gotta get this done first. Easy. God has got of grace. The third thing is simply judging others. These practices might be helpful for you. I'm not telling you to go get these books. I'm not telling you to go pray these fixed times. I'm not telling you that you have to do anything here. But when we become rigid on these things, we see that they're beneficial for us. When someone does not do what we do, it's easy to start judging them and say, well, you obviously don't get as much from Jesus as I do because my tradition is this much time in the morning and since you don't do that. Judging others is the biggest issue with all of these pathways. When we think this is it, we have a major problem. And for us as a church, we have rituals and traditions. I love them. They ground us. They may also change, and that's okay. They're not the end-all be-all. I will simply tell you that as a church, we will not be the church who looks at the way that other churches do things and critique them because it's lifeless, that those rituals are wasted, Shame on us. Shame on us if we do this. God can speak through a hymn. He can speak 
through metal. Um, he can speak through hip-hop. He can speak through silence. He can speak through routine. He can speak through ritual. He can speak through symbol. He can speak through you. Shame on us if we begin to say that's not how God speaks. That tradition is wrong. No more. If you come to complain about another church, I don't want to hear it. Their tradition is theirs. Are they attempting to love Jesus with all that they've got? Then let's bless them. Is it the way that we would do it? No. Does it really matter? If I preach in a suit every week, I know sometimes when I'm in a t-shirt, it frustrates some of you. If I have a hat, you don't like it. All right, big deal. There's a difference. My hope and my prayer is maybe some of this you can introduce back into your faith, that you can encourage each other and be like, you like it, you like it. Hey, Jimmy, you know, like, maybe. My heart was filled today with hymns. I cling to an old rugged cross. Oh, I'm gonna exchange it for a crown. Amazing grace never will lose its luster in my heart and I never knew them growing up. When I was on vacation in closing, I simply went to Incarnation Church up in Mantua. You familiar with it? I was ready to go to Mass because that's what I do when I'm on vacation. I like the routine. I pulled into church and there was a sign that said, work on sanctuary, follow detour to Mass. And I was like, okay, I pull in. All of a sudden, I see people walking into church, and I'm not familiar with the campus at all, and I begin to walk in. I open the door, and do you know what I see? Basketball nets. Church was in a gym. And I stopped for a moment and went, Lord, is this my lot in life? Will church never be in a sanctuary? Will, will the sanctuary always make me want to do a layup? And you know what the Holy Spirit was so evident in speaking to me is, what if it is? And the building didn't matter. The stained glass didn't matter, but the liturgy and routine held me close to Christ. We're in a gym. Can a church in a gym really be a traditionalist, have those elements? Yes. We stand for the public reading of Scripture because it is important. We celebrate communion every week because maybe your life looks different than mine, but I need a weekly reminder of the body and the blood of Christ poured out for me. I need this every week. That's why we close our service the same way, is to celebrate the body and blood of Christ. Would you stand with me as we prepare our hearts? Jesus, you're so good. You're so kind. You're amazing. And, and, and I just confess the times that I feel like we have shamed or said to the, those other traditions, the way they do it is wrong. It's just different. God, I pray a blessing over every church in this community that there would be a sense of a drawing towards you through whatever tradition is necessary, not at the, the price of the tradition, but it, God, would they point all things towards your grace and your mercy and here at Crossbridge, whatever it is that we find as part of what we do, and it's just like, oh, that's what we do. What our rituals or traditions bring glory and in our personal lives where they draw us to you and i thank you for the command to celebrate every time we gather i thank you that 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 you held up 
bread and looked at your disciples and said, this is my body. And they're looking at bread thinking, I'm going to look at that every day. And you said, when you see this bread, you'll always think of my body broken for you. And then, then you held up that cup of wine. And you said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then every time they would drink wine from then on out, I'm positive they would remember that your forgiveness. We remember those things today. We celebrate them right now.